Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message entitled, Loving Others, Honor Your Mother and Father. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We live in a day in which the word love is greatly abused. I mean, perhaps the word love has always been greatly abused, but in our day, it can mean almost anything a person wants it to mean. Back in 1970, beginning of the sexual revolution, songwriter and singer Stephen Stills released a song entitled Love the One You're With. So the line in the song went as follows. And if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Translation, If your wife or husband is out of town, have sex with whomever is close at hand. And all of that was said as if it should have been obvious. After all, love the one you're with means have unrestrained sex and that's love. I wonder how loving that feels to the one who's the object of betrayal or when sexual disease are brought into a marriage or the children who are the product of rancor and divorce. How but Stephen Stills, along with his generation and the ones that were to follow, were convinced that the mores regarding sexual faithfulness should be abandoned. In its place would be the lack of all restraint, and that was called love. Still called that in our day. The second table of the law, that is, from the fifth to the tenth commandment, teaches us God's direction about what is to be our love to our neighbors. You know, today we're going to look at the fifth and sixth and seventh command, and each one of these three commandments teach us something about love. So let's start with the fifth commandment, and I'm reading Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I've tried to make the point that the Ten Commandments are the foundation of all the later laws, and so let's see what other laws have to say. Leviticus 19, 32. You shall stand before the gray head and honor the face of the old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. That is, the generation that's before you is not to be cursed or belittled or held in low esteem. They are to be honored, for the legacy they left is a legacy which the next generation can build upon. And it's for that reason that parents had a special place of honor in the law. So Exodus 21, verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Or Leviticus 19, verse 3 says, every one of you shall revere his father and his mother. And Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. So does that mean that the authority of father and mother can leave room for abuse of children? It almost seems that way from the reading of this text. But please remember that this law of honoring father and mother was placed within boundaries. In the last Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, it begins with words that reemphasize the Ten Commandments. Children, it says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. 
But then just several verses later in verse 4, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is, the authority that father and mother bring to their families is not the authority of abuse, but the authority to train the next generation in holiness and in the fear of the Lord. And according to the Bible, the primary teacher of the faith of the next generation are the parents. Now, you get that from Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And we get a sense from reading this that in Israel to rebel against father and mother was to rebel against the sacred instruction that was to take place in every home. And by the way, I've witnessed this on more than one occasion while I was visiting Israel. I've stood at the Western Wall on the Temple Mount and what many North Americans call the Wailing Wall. And I've watched Orthodox fathers with their sons going to the wall, especially on the Sabbath, Torah in hand, as each boy takes his turn reading the sacred script all within the sight of his father, who's coaching him both in the reading of this scripture and the prayers as well. And in contrast, we see the exact opposite of the sons of Eli, the priest. For Samuel 2 verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And then in verses 22 to 23, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? Then to verse 25, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So here we come full circle. Back in Deuteronomy, a rebellious son can be guilty of death. Now, In reality, we don't know of a single incident where that actually happened, but the law seems to level a threat to indicate this is serious. But for Samuel, God carries out the sentence. Now, one more word before we move on. The fifth command promises that if one keeps the command, one will live long in the land. Great many Christians misunderstand. Look, this text doesn't teach that if you honor your parents, you're going to live to 92. And if you don't, you'll probably die at 52. Now, it doesn't say that. The text has nothing to say about the lifespan of an individual. Living long in the land means living long in the promised land. You know, if the home is a place where Scripture is taught, and if every generation obeys the mandate of the fifth command, God will allow Israel to remain in the land. But if they don't, then they won't. Then the Babylonians come and drag them out of their land. That's what the passage means. See, honoring father and mother as well as father and mother carrying out their duty before the Lord is loving because it safeguards not only the life of the person, but it safeguards an entire culture and allows them to go on. So let's move to the sixth command, which is Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Now, what's interesting about this command is how widely misunderstood this command has become. A wider part of the culture believes that this command says, thou shalt not kill. You know, at least that's how the command was translated in the old King James Bible. And that's just a mistranslation, a mistranslation that's been so widely perpetuated that this command has been used in ways in which it was never intended. See, the Hebrew word is the word ratzach, And it refers what we would call to today homicide or murder rather than a generalized word for killing. 
And so this verse can't be used to prohibit the killing of animals or a verse against capital punishment or even a verse against going to war. If you want to hear what the Bible says about those themes, you have to go to other places. This command very specifically relates to murder. And that's interesting because, as you might know, of the Ten Commandments, only the sixth and the eighth are commands that you find in most countries' criminal code. That is, the command not to murder and not to steal, those are criminal matters in all countries. The other eight are not in the law code of most nations. And so we might think that on this matter, the matter of murder, you wouldn't find any disagreement. And in a sense, that, of course, is true. The prohibition against murder is found in every single nation on earth, among every people group on earth. However, the murder rates vary greatly among the countries of the earth. If you want a relatively safe place on earth, well, you might want to try living in places like Austria or Singapore or Japan. And if you happen to live in a place like Venezuela, your chances of being murdered are about 100 times higher than if you lived in Austria. You see, some nations have a higher murder rate than others, or some nations find a more acceptable level of acceptance of murder. Now, I know that various social scientists, sociologists, and the like give various reasons for that. Now, they talk about access to weapons, rates of poverty, as well as you know other measurements that show the degree of social chaos that exists within a culture. And undoubtedly, these are factors. But what's also essential is the breakdown of family. You see, with the breakdown of family comes a breakdown of the place where truth and godliness and morality when they're no longer taught and reinforced and expected and lovingly modeled, everything else breaks down. And it's interesting to me that a command about honoring father and mother comes first, and then comes the command against murder. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more, your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy. The very first murder in human history happened within a family. One man murdered his brother. Out of jealousy, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Genesis 4.10 records God speaking to Cain. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And from that, we are to understand that God is never indifferent to any act of murder. A murder may be done in secret, and the matter immediately comes before God's throne. 
And even though the world now suffers multiple murders every second, nothing has changed. God's attention is not distracted because of the immensity of human murders. Every single murdered person's blood cries out to God for justice, and in the end, God will avenge their blood. No murderer will ever get away with his act before the throne room of God. The next place murder is dealt with is in the aftermath of the universal flood. The world before the flood was a world of violent men. Various warlords thought nothing of killing their enemies, and after the flood, things now change. Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's to say, God views the murder of a human being as different from the taking of all other life. Human beings alone are made uniquely in the image of God, and therefore, in order to emphasize the gravity of the taking of a human life, God mandates the death penalty for the taking of human life. Now, this we might have two responses. The side of the debate that argues that the Bible demands that the death penalty be the law of nations that side, well, they'll normally point out that this law, found in Genesis 9, is a law that was given before God chose the Jewish people and and made them his own. And so, at least so this argument goes, we can't argue that capital punishment was only given to the nation of Israel. They argue it was a universal law. But wherever we come out on this matter, let's observe another detail. As we know, the matter is complicated. When people murder people, it's not always easy to ascertain who the murderer is. You know, I've long been interested in an organization called the Innocence Project. It sought to uncover many cases of wrongly convicted people. That's interesting because the Bible anticipates this. I'm reading Numbers 33, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. In short, the Old Testament law did not allow a person to receive the death penalty on the basis of circumstantial evidence. The murder must have been witnessed by at least two people. And I need to interject here that in our modern world, in those states that do have the death penalty today, that's often not the case. In fact, it's never the case. A great many people are on death row, and they're given a death penalty on the basis of circumstantial evidence, on the basis of motive and opportunity and the means to commit the crime. See, don't you see, this kind of a death penalty would not have been permitted in the Old Testament. Well, there's so much I can say about this matter. But the prohibition against murder states that God demands that we value human life. All human beings are in the image of God. And to treat human life with contempt or as something to be removed, well, that's an offense against God. God demands that human life be respected and not devalued. I find it horrifying when in today's world I hear people say, you know, there's just too many of us. This shows contempt for that which God values, human beings in his image. Let's now go to the seventh command, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And notice again that the command against murder is sandwiched in between the commands, first, to honor one's parents, and then second, to honor one's marriage. Clearly, murder occurs in a context 
in a context that seeks to devalue the oldest of human institutions, marriage resulting in family. Have you ever wondered why it is that the seventh command seems to limit itself to merely adultery? See, adultery, as you know, is a sin against the marriage covenant. That is to say, a married individual has sexual relations with someone who is not his or her spouse. That's adultery. That's betraying the marriage covenant. But it's important to state the Christian position on this matter at the outset. Historically and biblically, Christians have always taught and believed that any sexual activity or desire outside of heterosexual marriage is sin. That is to say, the sex in and of itself is an issue. But why then does the seventh commandment limit itself to adultery? If sex itself is the issue, what about premarital sex or simply sex between two single individuals? What about homosexual sex or any sexual situation outside of marriage? So then back to the question, why does the seventh command limit itself to adultery? Well, the answer is that the Ten Commandments are the basic form of God's universal law. They're meant for people at all times. But the rest of the Old Testament law works this matter out for ancient Israel, and then the New Testament helps to understand that law for all people. So the Ten Commandments are the kernel. The rest of the Bible works it out. Where do we begin? I think the best place to begin is with creation. And you might be helped to remember that it was God who created sex. Genesis 1.27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible says the man and the woman in the original creation, in a world that was untouched by sin, were both naked and felt no shame. The passage speaks about the man and woman becoming one flesh, and that's an allusion to the sexual act. You know, God commends the sexual act between a husband and a wife. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19 says to men, let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In fact, one entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, is a love poem celebrating the sexual love of a husband and a wife. And so the Bible speaks quite explicitly about a God who not only created two genders— but a God who does so for the sake of marriage. And within that estate, the Bible makes it clear that God smiles upon and urges married couples to be in a sexual relationship of joy with each other. But when sin entered the world, things were twisted. So was the sexual act. And so in order to prevent the harm that would come from the sinful use of the sexual act, the law places boundaries around the sexual act. I mean, you might want to read Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, while still directed towards Israel, makes the statement that these laws, these prohibitions against sex outside of marriage are universal. They're intended for all people. So again, we're left with a question. If that's true, if all sex outside of marriage is forbidden in the Bible, and that's what the Bible says, why does the seventh command limit itself to adultery? And the answer from the rest of the Old Testament is plain. Marriage was foundational to the creation. And in ancient Israel, it was the family that arranged marriages. And so it would be quite uncommon for a young person to be unmarried. Almost every adult was married. And furthermore, according to Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 and following, 
If a man has sex with a betrothed woman or an engaged woman and the tryst was consensual, both were to be stoned. But if it was not consensual, the man alone was to be stoned. You see, marriage is assumed. When you're young, your parents arrange your marriage. Your task then in the Old Testament was to learn to love your spouse, and a central feature of that love was to rejoice in one another. And from that joy, the next generation is formed. You see, sex was to be bounded in within the relationship between one man and one woman who would give themselves to each other as long as they lived. And furthermore, any violation of that marriage covenant is not just considered a crime against each other. It was considered a crime against the institution that was founded by God. This was an institution that was meant to order the way in which the entire civilization could find peace, love, and harmony. See, the point then of the command to honor father and mother and to value human life and to value marriage is the command to live the life of love and to reject any form of life that leads to hatred and animosity because that kind of a life would break down the moral foundations of the community and lead others to live a life of hatred and eventually lead to the dissolution of the culture. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the God who loves is the God who teaches us how to live in love. The commands of God are only burdensome if the heart hates God and his commands. But when the heart is transformed by Christ, the commands become our guideposts into the life that brings blessing rather than curse. That's a great message, John. Let me ask you a bit of a sensitive question. The whole honor your father and mother, what does that look like for those who've experienced abusive parenting? Yeah, abusive parenting is a particular problem and it's you know, it's greatly felt in all areas of society. So let me say something, however, uh, especially, and I can't answer all these questions, but let me say something to those who have grown up now, you're adults, and you've had a mother or a father that have been abusive towards you. Let me say this, your mental health is gonna be determined on whether or not you can honor them. They still gave you life, and they still raised you maybe badly, but they still did. And so if you curse them all the days of your life, you'll end up being a bitter individual who takes this problem with your parents into all other areas of life. Your freedom depends on you honoring them in some fashion. Learn to do it, and you will learn to be healthy. This, I think, is a word from God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of His Word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the Scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, 
Or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.